Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African Perspective, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on double one nine two five kilohertz on the 25 meter band to Far West Africa. We're also on uh, DSTV's Audio Bouquet, Channel 802. I'm Amanda Machaga in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lihuku and Fikile Lungwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. DRC opposition parties remain divided ahead of December elections. South Africa's International Relations Minister to visit DRC. In economics, Zimbabwe invites bids for struggling national airline. And in sports, South Africa's Bafana Bafana to face Paraguay in Nelson Mandela Challenge. But first, here's Anne Musa with the news. A very good morning to you. Madagascar's former president, Andre Rogelina, has rejected allegations by EU observers that he bribed local officials in return for their support in last week's presidential vote. A European Union observer mission in a report says it has noted that candidates committed breaches ahead of the November 7th poll. It says Rogelina paid a total of 5,000 US dollars to two local chiefs. The report also found that the election of overall passed off normally and irregularities had been very isolated. According to preliminary results released, Rogelina is leading the election battle ahead of his rival Mark Rovalamanana, also a former president. Key players in Libya, including Prime Minister Fahiz al-Saraj and the man who controls much of the east of the country, Khalifa Haftar, are in Italy for a summit on Libya's future. The BBC's James Reynolds reports. Italy was once the colonial power in Libya. It's keen to demonstrate that it still has an important role to play. Italy wants to give momentum to a tentative UN plan to organise a national conference in Libya early next year, followed by elections. Early reconciliation may be difficult. General Haftar pointedly kept his overcoat on during the ceremonial handshake with his Italian host, and then he declined to attend the official welcome dinner with all the other guests. Leaders of the Horn of Africa have been urged not to take the recent Ethiopia-Eritrea peace deal for granted. The war between the two countries between 1998 and 2000 left about 80,000 people dead. A border dispute sparked renewed fighting since Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took over in April. The two neighbors have restored diplomatic ties, resumed flights and reopened borders. Eritrean ambassador to South Africa, Salah Omar Abdu, says the peace deal will benefit both countries. For Eritrea, far less military expenditures that was necessary for the defense of its sovereignty will entail positive ramification for rapid growth of its economy. Lifting of the sanctions will open up investment and the tourism. Many tourists can be lured to visit Eritrea. Finally, maybe for both countries, the process of restarting the economy, revamping the administration and the demobilization will occupy both governments for a long time to come. Effective utilization of the young minds in high-tech and sciences will play 
definitely a big role. Search teams have recovered the remains of 42 people killed by a devastating wildfire in the town of Paradise in Northern California. Authorities say this is the deadliest single wildland blaze in the history of California. The fire is also the most destructive on record in the state of California, having leveled more than 7,100 homes and other buildings since it erupted last Thursday. The latest death toll is up from the 29 tallied at the weekend. And finally, Amnesty International has withdrawn its highest honor from from the leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. The human rights group says this is in light of Suu Kyi's shameful betrayal of the values she once stood for. The Ambassador of Conscience Award was given to the leader of Myanmar in 2009. Amnesty Secretary General Kumi Naidu says he's written to Suu Kyi, informing her of the decision. He says since Suu Kyi became the de facto leader of Myanmar's civilian-led government in April 2016, her administration has been actively involved in the commission of multiple human rights violations. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time. Reports from the DRC say the country's two leading opposition parties withdrew from a pact to support a single presidential contender, significantly weakening efforts to defeat the ruling party candidate backed by longtime President Joseph Kabila. Their dramatic development came less than 24 hours after representatives of the Central African nation's opposition parties announced in Geneva that they had collectively chosen Martin Fayulu to face a ruling party candidate in Manuel Ramazani Shaderi in the December 23rd vote. Janwe Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Nobody could believe Martin Fayulu could be chosen as the opposition joint candidate since his name was not even mentioned among the favorites. The announcement of his name has come as a big surprise within the opposition here in the Democratic Republic of Congo's capital city, Kinshasa, but indeed opponents here are really divided on such a choice. Some of the opposition executives believe the seven leaders who met in Geneva have done well to choose Martin Fayulu, a big satisfaction for Jean-Pierre Bemba's movement for liberation of Congo, well known as MLC. The opposition has always failed to unite for facing the ruling coalition in unity, but today it's a sense of responsibility, according to the MLC Secretary General If Bazaiba. In 2006, there was no opposition unity in 2011 again and that's why we couldn't repeat the same mistake. That's the sense of responsibility and it's also due to internal pressure. Let me surprise you. Even our friends from the ruling coalition complain they have been imposed somebody they don't know where from. And according to this other senior executive who's in charge of communication within the opposition dynamic, Martin Fayulu is the one who'll make it easy for people of the Congo to win and celebrate its victory after December 23rd presidential election. 
election. Prince Epenge. You know Martin Fayulu has always fight for true elections and we are sure the day after December 23rd, DRC people will get its victory in hands and celebrate. However, this is not the common view within the opposition since it's not all the opponents who are satisfied after Martin Fayulu has been chosen to carry the joint candidacy. The Union for Democracy and Social Progress, well known as UDPS, is not ready to support Fayulu's candidacy and believe the best opposition joint candidate would be the UDPS leader Felix Tisekedi. It's a kind of disappointment the UDPS has expressed and believes the Congolese people has already made its choice and that's Felix Tisekedi if Bonkulu is the president of the UDPS Youth League. The people's candidate is Felix Chisekedi and the UDPS Youth League rejects the Geneva adventure. We need to stand on our position and we'll go to poll with Felix Chisekedi as our candidate and the DRC people as the only allied. The opposition choice has been also criticized by this senior executive from Moses Katumbi's political platform Ensemble pour le changement, Adam Bombo believes Martin Fayulu is not the best for the position. This former presidential candidate who faced the president Joseph Kabila during 2011 presidential elections and couldn't make it is wondering what has interested the leaders in choosing Fayulu since there were some others who are better than him. Adam Bombole. We must be realistic and take into consideration the field parameters. I think there were other candidates who can face the ruling coalition. I would like them to choose Felix Chisekedi since UDPS is a big and old party or Vital Kamere who has already proven his competencies. The opposition remains then divided on such a joint candidate while Martin Fayulu must face Ramazani Shadari from a very organized, united and disciplined ruling coalition. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. South African companies that employ local young people, including young graduates, should be rewarded with tax incentives. This is the call to President Cyril Ramaphosa by a group of young graduates led by the African Progressive Movement Youth League in Cape Town. The youth movement says youth unemployment can lead to depression and young people losing control of themselves. Mercedes Besant reports from Cape Town. When President Cyril Ramaphosa answered questions in the NCOP two months ago, he spoke about the Youth Service Initiative partnership between Labour government and business called YES. He had told MPs that the YES program will ensure that young graduates are employed in the corporate sector. The president said the youth are the hardest hit when it comes to unemployment standing between 38 and 39 percent. The quest that young people who are graduates have raised that they go to universities and TVET colleges and get qualifications and in the end don't get employment. So we're responding to this. But at the same time, we've also called upon the private sector to employ young graduates into their ranks. And the private sector in this regard, which is part of the YES initiative, will ensure placements or care within all sectors of our economy. Big businesses will also facilitate the placement of young people in small and medium enterprises. 
About two months later, a group of young graduates raised the issue of unemployment at President Ramaphosa's doorstep in Parliament. They say they handed over a memorandum to the presidency at Danes last week. The youth group is led by APM Youth League leader Raven Noble. He says unemployment is not only affecting the current generation of young people, but also the youth of the future. Raven says they are calling on the president to consider their plight. Mapli to government and even to the business sector is to create job opportunities, especially my plea is for government and for SARS and for companies to work together. Figure out some way, some system where there's some tax incentives for people, for companies who hire local young people, local graduates. I mean, we've, we've seen it done overseas and it's working. Right now it is working. So if we can do that as a nation, we will not only save the, the youth of today, but we'll give hope to the kids of tomorrow too. Because right now we need to know that unemployment is not only affecting this generation, but it's affecting the 15-year-old and the 16-year-old who's still at school. Noble says youth unemployment can lead to depression and young people losing control. Right now we're sitting at, at the 52% youth unemployment. And it's really breaking down the fabric of our society. Because as you know, you go, you study, you get student loans. Many people who study cannot pay off their student loans because they are unemployed. And you know unemployment leads to frustration, leads to depression. And you know, once people are depressed, a lot of them lose control, and then they do things that are out of character. And I know, being a journalist, you've probably seen it many times. Lynn Iso from retreat in Cape Town graduated five years ago, still have to repay her study fees, and cannot find a job in a field of study. For me, um, I've studied public management. And since finishing public management, I've never gotten an opportunity to show what I can do within that field. And it's, it, it becomes frustrating because, like, like Samuel was saying, there are bills that need to be paid, fees need to be paid back, and you are now forced to find something elsewhere that's not in your field. So we are studying, we're paying money to study, but we can't get a job within our own field. Iso says all efforts to get a job in her field of study in the city of Cape Town, at the provincial government in the Western Cape, and even in national government departments have been unsuccessful. That report by our parliamentary correspondent Mercedes Besant in Cape Town. No matter where you go, remember the road that will lead you One of Africa's most impressive events, the East African Market Festival, is taking place in Johannesburg, South Africa's biggest city, during the month of November. 2018, culminating the main event on the 17th of November. Hosting a selection of incredible talented musicians, a craft market, East African cuisine, and much, much more, the East African Market Festival. Bring your family and friends. Come experience East Africa. If you cannot make it, then join Channel Africa as we bring you the excitement and sounds from the event. Channel Africa, bringing you to the African perspective. (laughs) 
It's 15 minutes after 8 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, where we're bringing you news from an African perspective. South Africa's International Relations and Cooperation Minister Lindwe Sisulu is to hold talks with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. This is a follow-up to the meeting held on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in September. The minister is also expected to visit the DRC on Wednesday. Our foreign editor, Sophie Mugwena, compiled this report. Minister Sisulu wrapping up her weekly briefing to the media for 2018, 10 months into the job. The message, South Africa will continue to have strong bilateral relations with different countries. And Pretoria is determined to improve relations with the United States of America. Sisulu will meet her U.S. counterpart, Mike Pompeo, before the end of the month. With the United States, um, I'm not sure at what point we would be able to accommodate uh, somebody as big as Donald Trump, President Donald Trump in our country, but we're working on things to to see that we are normalizing our relations. As I indicated, it's our biggest uh, trading partner. We are concerned about um, dumping steel and aluminium tariffs and all of those things. So we need to have uh, good relations, but uh, we have not got to the point of uh, closing up to that level. Uh, President Donald Trump is fairly new, and we're hoping that uh, with time, as he settles down, even the language will settle down and we will move a little closer, and uh, then we can begin considering possibility of uh, uh, a state visit. The country wants to take its rightful place within the family of nations. The president will visit the EU countries and is expected to address the EU Parliament. The President's upcoming visit will commence in Strasbourg, France, on the 14th of November, where President Ramaphosa will address the European Union. It's a gesture that we appreciate from uh, the EU, and meet key figures, including the President of the European Parliament, Mr. Antonio Tajani. President Ramaphosa will then proceed to Belgium, Brussels, where he will meet the King of the Belgians, his Majesty King Philippe uh, Leopold Louis-Marie and the Prime Minister of the Kingdom of Belgium, Mr. Charles Michel. He will also receive a courtesy call from the, uh, from the Minister President of the Government of Flanders, Mr. Gert Bourgeois. On the 15th November, the President will co-chair the 7th South, South Africa EU Summit with the President of the European Council, Mr. Donald Tusk, and the President of the European Commission, Mr. Jean-Claude Juncker. The minister will visit the DRC on Wednesday. This at a time when opposition parties in that country have agreed on a candidate for the presidential election. Currently, the seven parties meeting in Geneva to see how they can uh, cooperate and uh, with each other. And uh, uh, I have been... Uh, very keen to ensure that whatever discussions go on about the DRC, it should include all the parties in the DRC. The only way that we in South Africa were able to overcome the obstacles that we had was when we came together and discussed how we would handle the elections with all parties present. On Rwanda, South Africa believes relations with Kigali will improve. Do I think that the matter of the uh, inquest of uh, the former general is going to complicate issues? No. If anything, it will actually open up issues and it will be clear to both ourselves and Rwanda why we came to the situation that we're in now. 
and uh, we would like to make sure that it doesn't happen again. I did meet uh, the emigre population of Rwanda led by General Nyamwasa to indicate to them that we're entering into negotiations with the government of Rwanda and we, in, we wanted to find out from them what their views are as uh, persons who are refugees in our country. It was important that we consulted with them. And I was pleasantly surprised at their response. They said uh, they would be very happy if an opportunity was created for them to negotiate with, an, uh, with the Rwandan government so that there are hostilities, there's a, an end to hostilities on both sides. President Ramaphosa will also attend a special AU meeting in Ethiopia where the current AU chair, Paul Kagame, will present his report on AU reforms. Sophie Mugwena, Pretoria. Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, says the life of its leader Nelson Chamisa is in danger following abduction attempt last Saturday. The MDC says state security agents interfered with Chamisa's motorcade on its way back from a rally in Marondera. Government has denied the allegations and in turn accused Chamisa of staging the abduction attempt. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. While the Zimbabwean government is still seized with the 1st of August post-election killings following the violent protests by suspected opposition elements, Nelson Chamisa's life has been threatened. According to MDC, their leader, 40-year-old Chamisa, was nearly abducted in the capital Saturday by suspected armed security agents. The motive behind the attempted abduction is yet to be known, but already government said the alleged abductor was in fact a victim of abuse by Chamisa's security aides. Already Zimbabwe Republic Police, ZRP in Arare, have summoned MDC's chief security officer to give a statement with possibility of an arrest. However, Jacob Mafume, MDC's spokesperson, told the media in Arare Monday that Chamisa's life was in danger. The MDC is gravely concerned about President Chamisa's security. There is a continuous threat to President Nelson Chamisa's life and we note with concern a perpetual invasion of his privacy. While we understand that he is a public official, we are greatly worried that the state has put up apartheid-style surveillance, which is in violation of the Constitution in reference to the President's privacy. The concerns about President Chamisa's security extend not only to him, but to his family and other senior leaders in the party. Despite criticism by the government as well as some members of the public, Chamisa's party insists there was an abduction attempt on their leader over the weekend. They follow his motorcade or convoy at extraordinary high speeds. They interfere with the vehicles in his motorcade and at times they almost run him off the road in blatant violation of road rules. We are certain their intention is to cause an accident and then blame his drivers for negligence. What is worrying about Saturday's scaffold is that they actually physically interfered with the motorcade and attempted to grab and abduct the president. They followed his motorcade at high speed from Mararuendera. When the security realized that it was being followed, as according to security protocol, they adopted evasive measures. One of the measures was to move into Rua and the vehicles followed. They returned into the highway and decided to go into Mabuku and the vehicles followed. The the followers 
had sophisticated communication gadgets. They were armed and one of the vehicles that was coordinated the effort had blue lights. Mafume criticized the Zimbabwean government leaders of always shifting the blame back to the victims instead of protecting them. We are all aware in, of the incidences involving Vice President Senator Morgan Komich, Vice National Chairperson, Honorable Tendaibiti, Youth Assembly Chairperson, Honorable Hepmo Chiziwa, have all had their lives threatened in one form or the other. On 1 August 2018, when innocent civilians were brutally killed by soldiers in the streets of Harare, we all realized that even innocent ordinary Zimbabweans are not safe under the so-called new dispensation. Interestingly, the victims ended up having been blamed for having died. In the current case, it is therefore laughable and almost comical the attempt to blame President Chamisa for having been followed and having been nearly abducted. They now want to charge the victim with assault just as they are trying to blame the victims of the incident of 1st of August when people were shot. Currently, some Zimbabweans are a bit unsure if indeed there was an abduction attempt or not. However, past violent acts involving the late Morgan Changrai and many other political leaders quickly comes to the minds of many. For years, Zimbabwe has witnessed brutality with impunity against opposition leaders, and this includes abductions, killings, and assaults. While this could be the country's historical background, Allegations have been made against MDC for faking the said abduction on Saturday. More allegations have been made that Chamisa's aides were the ones who beat up motorists who were found to be following closely behind Nelson Chamisa. Mafume denied allegations. We have not had any incident where an ordinary civilian has reported our security or the president's motorcade or having been uh, blocked. People flock to see the president. People love our president, Nelson Chamisa, the ordinary people. When they come to the president, he's the most accessible leader in Zimbabwe in terms of public interaction. He allows them near, whether he's in a fuel queue, whether he's coming from a rally, whether he's... We know the demeanor of ordinary persons. They come bringing joy and not harm. We know the demeanor of state security. Investigations into the matter are currently underway. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. The state of Florida in the United States has once again become the center of attention after a statewide machinery count of votes was ordered after last week's midterm elections. The races for governor a Senate seat held by a Democratic incumbent and the position of state agriculture commissioner remain too close to call. Those contests, along with undecided elections in Georgia and Arizona, remain the most high-profile races yet to be settled, while the drama in the Sunshine State, as Florida is known, has echoed the 2000 presidential recount, which eventually saw George W. Bush controversially elected over Al Gore. Showing Price Peace reports. Because the margin in all three races in Florida fell below less than half of 1%, a machine recount was ordered as per state law by Florida's Secretary of State this past weekend. And there are two races of particular importance to national observers. The governor's race, where Republican Ron DeSantis leads Democrat Andrew Gillum by 34,000 votes, or 0.41%, and the Senate race, where outgoing Florida Governor Rick Scott 
leads Democratic incumbent Bill Nelson by 12,500 votes, or 0.15%, well within the margins required for a recount. Gillum, who hopes to become the state's first black governor, conceded on election night, but has since withdrawn that concession as the race tightened. I am replacing uh, my words of concession with an uncompromised and unapologetic call that we count every single vote. We count every vote. Uh, And I say this recognizing uh, that uh, my fate in this may or may not change. Uh, What I do know is that every single Floridian who took time to go out to cast their vote, to participate in this process, deserve uh, the comfort of knowing that in a democratic society and in this process, every vote will be counted. Uh, I've got to imagine that if the shoe were on the other foot of my opponents, uh, not one of them would seek a different outcome. Not one of them would stand in the way of counting every vote. President Donald Trump tweeted Monday that the Florida election be called in favor of the Republican candidates in both the Senate and governor races, claiming without evidence that large numbers of new ballots are showing up out of nowhere, echoing claims by Republican Senate candidate Rick Scott. We've all seen the incompetence and the irregulators in vote tabulations in Broward and Palm Beach for years. Well, here we go again. I will not sit idly by while unethical liberals try to steal this election from the great people of Florida. Senator Nelson hired one of Hillary Clinton's lawyers from D.C., and the first thing he did was tell reporters that he is here to win the election. He did not say he is here, he did not say that he wants a full and fair election or even an accurate vote count. Early indications were that Republicans would win both races, but votes continued to be counted in Democratic-leaning counties, ensuring that election night leads continued to shrink, with overseas military and civilian ballots still to be tabulated. Rick Scott accused Democrats of trying to steal the election. Every day since the election, the left-wing activists in Broward County have been coming up with more and more ballots out of nowhere. We all know what is going on. Every person in Florida knows exactly what is happening. Their goal is to keep mysteriously finding more votes until the election turns out the way they want. And when that fails, they will file a bunch of lawsuits in order to try to overturn the will of the voters. Republican warnings of voter fraud have been rejected. Listen to Eugene Pettis, the general counsel for the Broward County Supervisor of Elections. There have been allegations of fraud. Those are serious charges to recklessly uh, offer out there. There's no basis for it. To give a claim of fraud without any evidence, I think, is, 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 is unacceptable, uh, should be unacceptable in our electoral process. The votes have all been counted. The votes have been transmitted to the state. Uh, as you may know, that was a deadline of uh, noon today. They had that through the canvassing board. Uh, the preliminary certifications went up there in advance of 12 noon. Uh, So that was what the law requires. That has been complied with. We have complied with the judge's order. The unofficial recount totals must be completed by Thursday afternoon this week as accusations of fraud and subsequent legal challenges in local court have conjured up memories of the fraught 2000 presidential recount that was eventually decided by the Supreme Court in Washington. 
in the Georgia governor's race. Stacey Abrams, who hopes to become the first black female governor in the country, has filed a federal lawsuit asking for rejected absentee and provisional ballots to be counted in the hopes of forcing a recount there. Democrat Kirsten Sinema leads her Republican challenger by 1.17% in another tight race for Arizona's Senate seat. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Time now for our news headlines with N. Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines are th- at least three Malian civilians have been killed and four foreigners working for a UN contracted mine clearing operation wounded in a suicide attack in the country's violence hit north. Madagascar's former president Andre Rogelina rejects allegations by EU observers that he bribed local officials in return for their support in last week's presidential vote. And Amnesty International withdraws its most prestigious human rights prize from the leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, and she's back at nine with your full bulletin. South Africa's former Public Enterprises Minister Barbara Hogan has revealed the, to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that former President Jacob Zuma interfered in the appointments of senior positions, especially when it came to Transnet CEO. Hogan says the former president only wanted Siabonga Gama to occupy the post. She was giving her testimony at the inquiry probing State Capture in Parktown, Johannesburg. Mbali Titanu reports. As the Commission of Inquiry immediately got underway after a month-long break, Chairperson of the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, made an appeal to the media and the public. This follows the publication of the Commission's evidence before it was presented to the Commission. Justice Zondo further told the public hearings that an investigation is since underway to establish how Minister Pravin Gordon's evidence was leaked last week. No person shall, without the written permission of the chairperson, A, disseminate any document submitted to the commission by any person in connection with the inquiry or publish the contents or any portion of the contents of such document or peruse, that is B, peruse any document including any statement which is destined to be submitted to the chairperson or intercept such document while it is being taken or forwarded to the chairperson. Soon after, former Public Enterprises Minister Barbara Hogan was next on the witness stand. Hogan called into question the deployment committee of the ANC and how it influences the appointments of certain individuals. I, my own view after an experience nowadays is that I sincerely wonder if a deployment committee plays a useful role now. You know, it's a handful of people. If you see the number of appointments that go to cabinet every time, I mean, it's huge numbers of people. You don't know how many institutions government has got. 
And for a handful of people just simply to decide that this is their preferred candidate, on what basis, what transparency is there? I'm not saying that that deployment committee didn't always operate with, with honesty and integrity, but the weakness of the system is that if that deployment committee is captured by whatever forces, it can have a fundamental impact on government. Hogan then told the Commission of continued interference in the appointment of board members and senior managers of the SOEs. It is important to note that there were three damaging processes afoot in my time with regard to SOE-related appointments. There were the very political and public maneuverings of certain elements within the ANC and the Tripart Alliance to get their way. Then there were ways that President Zuma and some cabinet colleagues thwarted my attempts to get cabinet approval for board appointments. And I stress the word thwarted. And finally, the inexcusable interference was my responsibilities as a minister by President Zuma that eroded my executive authority, and I refer in particular to ESCOM in that regard. The former minister then revealed to the commission how then-President Jacob Zuma interfered with the process of appointing the Transnet CEO. Chair, I was extremely shocked. The president would not hear of any candidate except Sia Bonga Gama. I informed him how professional the selection process was. I informed him that he was facing some serious uh, misconduct charges, that the board, in terms of the PFMA, was obliged to investigate these charges. It wasn't just going ahead. And under these circumstances, it would not be in the interest of Chancellor to appoint a group CEO who was facing, you know, whose time would be caught up with defending himself in a misconduct. But even over and above that, I was recommending Mr. Maseko on the basis of the recommendations made by the Chancnet, the recommendations made by the Professional Evaluation Agency. I won't go through them here, but they are here in this report that Mr. Paswana forward, uh, gave to me. Um, it speaks very glowingly of Mr. Maseko. Hogan is back on the witness stand this morning. Her evidence today is expected to detail the request by the Gupta brothers where she was asked to cancel the SAA route from Johannesburg to Mumbai in India. The former minister will also tell the commission how she was fired by then-President Jacob Zuma. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. South Africa's Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Dr. Zwilim Kize, says his department has identified several aspects of municipalities that affect their ability to function properly, which include matters relating to governance and financial management. He was speaking at the 13th National Municipal Managers Forum held in Germiston, east of Johannesburg. The forum held over two days under the auspices of the South African Local Government Association, SALGA, as discussing matters affecting municipal management 
measures and also exploring innovations as well as good practices to improve municipal performance. Forum is taking place as Minister Mkise is spearheading a national municipal recovery program aimed at turning dysfunctional and distressed municipalities around. For more on what this year's forum seeks to achieve, Channel Africa spoke to Salka CEO Olile George. We are convened here on a forum referred to as Municipal Managers Forum. It's a gathering that Salga convenes uh, every quarter with municipal managers um, across the country for all our municipalities, 257 in the country. Basically, it's focusing at, uh, at three issues to look at how we can accelerate the performance of municipalities to deliver on their responsibilities on water, electricity, particularly on looking at innovations. Where else is it better done within the country? And where else is it better done in Africa? And where is the benefit of the advent of technology to improve on performance on delivering such a function? The second one is to look at areas of governance challenges and areas of performance on finances of municipalities as well as expenditures on capital projects to put water and so on. The third area is on areas where we look at interpretation of national policies and laws on how as municipal managers, given the fact that municipal managers are the vital cog in the delivery of services, they are sitting basically at the helm of a municipal to translate the aspirations of communities. So we regularly update them as SALGA. Secondly, receive from them bottom-up experience of how our policies turn out to be from what was intended and what is actually the reality of implementation. And thirdly, we bring on board national role players like Ministry of Local Government. Today we are addressed by the Minister of Cooperative Governance and basically he laid out his expectation of how he would want to see municipal managers playing their role in giving effect to proper governance, proper administration in municipalities and also indicate to them in very clear terms, you have to play your role as an administrator. Anything else that is political, leave it to your politicians. Secondly, we are asking you to do the minimum. And that minimum is, can you deploy your expertise and your experience and skill to the best of your ability to service communities? And then he also took time to outline the national priorities and how his department is currently being transformed to better service municipalities. So that's sure. how we have started so far. But in the main, we're focusing on innovation, on improving accountability and improving performance. Dr. Zuelim Kizib, during his opening address, uh, he mentioned that uh, since April this year, he has been visiting various uh, provinces and meeting various uh, stakeholders on uh, the mission of uh, building effective and uh, fully functional municipalities in order uh, to make the recovery plan uh, which has been launched earlier this year succeed. How effective has the municipal recovery plan been uh, in terms of uh, making sure that um, there is quality service delivery in local government? Well, the jury is still out there given the fact that it's still new interventions that the minister has put up there. You would appreciate that for any plan you need a longer time to start uh, seeing the efficacy of the intervention but what is effective so far is the diagnosis so when you prepare a recovery plan you are able to zoom in and identify various areas of weakness so that your your interventions are well timed and they are appropriate to the cause so so far at least where there's been 
that kind of a recovery plan framework developed. We know for a fact now that at least it is directed at a known problem. So that's the first part of the recovery plan. I think between now and April, we will be able to see the efficacy of those interventions. And plans are plans. As, as we all know, all you need is a total commitment of many players involved, political leadership, administrative leadership, and also diligent execution of the plan. Otherwise, you will have plans and plans until such time that the culture of the organization, from a leadership point of view and administration, everybody commits to the support of measures that provincial and national government is placing to bear to assist municipalities to improve. There are also concerns, Mr. George, that municipal managers are paid an awful a lot of money in relation to the kind of service that is being provided in local government level. Some have even gone to the extent of suggesting that the salaries of municipal managers must be slashed by half. Is the remuneration of municipal managers under discussion as well? It is, uh, because tomorrow we'll be discussing the issue of upper limits. Remember, municipalities do not regulate themselves. They are regulated by national government in terms of how they can pay any manager, any CFO, any technical official, right up to the level of a cleaner. So no municipality determines its own salary. They are all regulated. Those who are under bargaining category through bargaining uh, conversations, the outcomes that get implemented. Those who are in the senior executive, the minister issues a guideline called upper limits of what can be paid as a salary, benefits, and so on. The important issue to note, though, is that things must always be looked at in context. If you are a municipality in Zululand, you want to attract somebody, given the scale of challenges and problems, you've got to be in a position to pay a premium to get a person to pay or even decide to go there. You need a chartered accountant to go and work in a remotest area of our country. That person has a choice to go to NetBank. That person has a choice to go to City of Durban. That person has a choice to come to Pretoria at IDC. So if you have to attract, you've got to look at relativity the right amount for the right skill, right competence, and right attitude, professional attitude. So that's the minimum principle around remuneration of managers. That's Kolile George, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the South African Local Government Association, Salga, talking to Kumbero Munzerere. Time now for our economics news with Tabisoli Hoku. You are listening to Channel Africa. African Export and Import Bank says low information on trade is hampering the acceleration of intra-Africa trade as the continent aspires to effectively integrate. Zambia and other countries in Africa are expected to launch the African Continental Free Trade Area that will result in the free movement of goods and services. With this development, it will be necessary for adequate information on trade to increase trade levels which remain low at 15%. The government of Eswatini should stop increasing tariffs on water, electricity and fuel if there's no money. This according to public sector unions who were sharing the outcome of the meeting they had with Prime Minister Ambrosi Manvolo Lameni and his team of cabinet ministers on Friday. 
The unionists are of the view that if there is no money in the country, then basic necessities should not go up in prices. The unions believe the Eswatini government increased these commodities because it knew there was money. South Africa's power utility has warned of a possible load shedding due to a uh, a constrained power electricity system. Eskim says that there is insufficient coal supply at its 11 power stations. The utilities spokesperson, Kudu Pasiwe, says they're currently transporting coal from the Midupi power station in Limpopo province to affected power stations in Mpumalanga province. Nigerian multinationals and high net worth individuals are now engaging in double insurance by insuring same assets locally as well as offshore due to inadequate capacity of Nigerian insurance industry. Vanguard News findings show that these set of people and corporates are compelled by the local content policy to insure locally, otherwise they would totally ignore the local insurance market. Commissioner for Insurance Al-Haji Mohamed Kari, who disclosed this to Vanguard, noted that they pay for double cover because they don't trust the local operator's capacity. The Kenyan Treasury Cabinet Secretary, Henry Rotech, has directed all government ministries, departments, agencies and county governments to refrain from engaging in negotiations for external borrowing without the approval of his office. Rotich says that the mandate of mobilizing external resources, which includes loans and grants, is vested in the National Treasury, as provided for in the Constitution, the Public Finance Management Act and the Kenya External Resources Policy of 2014. The memo has also been circulated to Principal Secretary, the Accounting Officers and Ministries and all CEOs of state corporations. The US dollar trades at 10.50 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.81 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 3.74 a Brazilian real, at 67.66 Russian ruble, and at 72.68 Indian rupee. 6.95 Chinese yuan, 14.38 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,204, platinum $842 pounds. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. Thank you, Tabi. So it's time now for our sports news with Fikile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with cricket news. South Africa got their ICC World T20 campaign off to a winning start after beating Sri Lanka by seven wickets and nine balls to spare in St. Lucia. The win, which came with re- relative ease, would have satisfied coach Hilton Moring after disappointing and concerning betting performances in their warm-up fixtures. After winning the toss, Dane Fanikerk had little hesitation in sending Sri Lanka in to bet, knowing that the Duckworth-Lewis-Stan method 
could play a factor later in the game with rain always around the corner. It was a police bowling effort from the Proteas women as they restricted Sri Lanka to 99 for 8 in their allotted 20 overs in St. Lucia. And football news, Zambia star forward Barbara Banda has warned that her country will not go to the Women's Africa Cup of Nations in Ghana just to make up the numbers. Zambia are placed in Group B of the eight-team tournament alongside defending champions Nigeria, South Africa and Equatorial Guinea, who they will face in the opening game on the 18th of November. The championship also serves as qualifiers for the Women's World Cup with the top three African teams securing a place at the France 2019. And South Africa's under-20 futsal indoor football team is on their way to Colombia for their maiden futsal World Cup starting from the 17th to the 27th of this month. The boys will play their opening game against Australia on the 18th and team coach Byron Cottle says he will be expecting a physical game against the more experienced side. We're obviously setting our mind on one game at a time. Our main goal, our big goal is to get, out, get through the group stages. If we can qualify for quarterfinal, then we have reached a huge um, achievement in, um, in what we set ourselves for. Even if we end up as one of the, um, the best place 30, that um, will get us through to the quarterfinals, we'll be proud of that as well. So hopefully the boys can gain some experience in the Sunday 20 World Cup and then take it with them and hopefully qualify for the men's unity coming next year to Argentina. In rugby news, Springbok women assistant coach Eddie Miners says there is a deep desire within the team to improve on the performance when they face Spain on Saturday at Campo de Rugby in Villa Joyosa after a morale-boosting reintroduction to Test Rugby last week. The Springbok women went down 19-5 against Wales in Cardiff over the weekend on Saturday in their first Test since the 2014 Women's Rugby World Cup after trailing 12-5 for most of the second half. This followed a 31-12 victory against the UK Armed Forces in Richmond in their tour opener. The Springbok women will face Italy in Prato in the final test on the 25th of November. And finally, with the 2018 Sports Star of the Year Awards now history, the spotlight is on the Minister of Sport in South Africa, Togosile Klasa, to release the long-awaited Ministerial Committee of Inquiry into SASCOG Governance Final Report. The hearings into the mismanagement and financial irregularities at Saskok took place in February and March this year, and the committee was headed by retired judge Ralph Zulman, veteran cricket administrator Dr. Ali Baha, and labor law expert Shamima Gabi. And Kasa knows very well that she cannot go beyond this month without having released this report. After finishing the awards, you see, tonight it's awards. Yeah, it is the awards. Uh, you're looking forward to that one yeah. indeed shortly sure. yeah because we know south africans have been waiting for that if we are celebrating excellence here as we are we were talking we're talking administrators we're talking athletes so critical for us is then move on to give out that report so that we are able to also chat away for that begins to say we are looking at uh, our administrators giving proper governance, uh, taking care of our athletes, and we want them to move uh, miles and miles up and, and bring on those medals. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's five minutes before nine Central African time recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine. DRC opposition parties remain divided ahead of December elections and South Africa's International Relations Minister to visit DRC. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today from myself, Amanda Machaga, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening.